right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Hennings. I'm here in studio with Mike Robinson, editor of the UK Column. We're here live uh, broadcasting from the UK. And as we told you before the break, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going international right now. Uh, we're going to try to connect with our uh, correspondent on the ground uh, associate editor, 21st Century Wire. Vanessa Beely is going to join us uh, in Aleppo, and hopefully we've got a, a stable line mic. Uh, we're going to try if we can connect her in right now. And uh, hello, Vanessa, are you there? I'm here, live in Aleppo. Excellent, excellent. Great line, great great signal. We can hear you loud and clear. Uh, right. thank, you f- thank you for joining us, uh, Vanessa, and uh, we, we know you're really busy and you've been, you know, really, your time's really precious there, and we really appreciate you being free for this segment. And first of all, just tell us about your impressions uh, of Syria and Aleppo uh, this time. This is uh, your sixth sixth or seventh uh, trip to the country, correct? Uh, I'm just trying to work it out, actually. I think it's my fifth. I think it's my fifth. Yeah, it's probably, I've been to Aleppo kind of more separate times than that, so you're right on that. But I think a whole trip, I think it's about my fifth. And how, um, how, is, yeah. how is it this time around? Um, well, uh, the road into Aleppo is a lot uh, clearer uh, than it was actually even when we came in April and May because the Syrian army has, has pushed uh, the ISIS forces um, even further back from the Kanasa road, which, if you remember, is the kind of final stretch of road um, into the outskirts of Aleppo. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Syria is such an um, astounding place. You know, I've spent really the last uh, three days in East Aleppo, really um, trying to dig further into various inquiries, including um, Bana al-Abed, uh, including Omran, Daknish, including the White Helmets, including the East Aleppo Councils that are being funded by um, the UK government and the Free Syrian Police, which um, we're, we're gradually finding out actually had a greater influence in, in East Aleppo than I think I was even aware. And, of course, we know, again, that's another UK government um, scheme, let's say, um, in Syria and uh, on the borders with Turkey. Um, so my time has been spent, if you like, in, in, in some of the most damaged areas of Syria, but of um, Aleppo. But what is extraordinary is that it doesn't matter um, where you go. There's little hives of activity even with reduced electricity, um, still a very sparse water supply because um, the terrorists to the north, ISIS to the north, have still uh, have still got control of the water supply into the city. And before they left, they destroyed many of the actual uh, water pipes that are bringing clean water into, into specific areas. Um, so despite all of these hardships everywhere you go, you, you, you see people rebuilding, you know, almost brick by brick. Um, and replacing doors, replacing windows. It's, it's, you don't drive around and, and, and see deserted streets. You see people um, buzzing with activity, shops reopening, um, again, with, with very sparse supplies. But they're still reopening, and, and there's a feeling of a rebuilding of a society. You know, you see the guys sitting out on the pavements um, smoking shisha and, and sharing coffee, and um, talking with each other, and, and there's a real, a completely different feel to the previous times I've been 
in the sense that there's none of this feeling of, of um, either from direct menace as there were in, in when I was there um, before its liberation or that sort of aftermath um, from the terrorist occupation when people were still feeling very withdrawn and very frightened. Um, now there's a real re-emergence of, of society, um, of, of life, really of life. Um, on that note, I would actually like to, to put out, um, we lost uh, what I consider a colleague, uh, Khaled uh, Al-Kateb, who is a young Syrian journalist, only 25 years old, um, amazing guy, amazing journalist. Um, he'd set up a charity to to help the martyrs' um, families in the city. Uh, 25 years old, he was on his way from Homs to uh, Al Sukhna today uh, towards sort of Derazor, um, and he was killed by an ISIS uh, rocket. Um, his cameraman, I think, was also wounded, but he was uh, killed outright. So he worked for Sputnik and RT Arabic. I think RT have, have put out a statement. Russia has also put out a statement. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, over 150 journalists have lost their lives uh, in this externally waged war. And another one today. You know, true heroes. These these are guys who are have no protection, <laughs> no insurance, no no backup, and yet they're going to the front lines. They're reporting. They're bringing us the truth, uh, and they're being killed for it. Um, so, I'd, I'd like to put out a real um, a prayer for him, and um, that he be remembered for for the work he did. And even though he was incredibly young, he he's he's so well known by all of the sort of independent media people that are following Syria because of the quality of his work and his courage. Um, so, you know, it's still going on. There's still a war here. Uh, there's there's still risks. Uh, there are still, I mean, even in East Aleppo, we were told there are still uh, sporadic explosions. Mm -hmm. um, so there are still, uh, whether they're sleeper cells, whether, you know, we don't know exactly what they are, but, but there have been every sort of couple of weeks I was told there are um, small detonations or explosions but you know it's it's that same old kind of um, process of maintaining an element of fear, an element of uncertainty. We see it in Damascus as well with the um, suicide things um, with the continuation of the mortar fire um, there was uh, mortars um, fell relatively close to Babtuma uh, or in Batuma only about 10 days ago um, and quite a few were injured so you know there's there are tremendous um, signs of optimism and positivity as we would expect from these people who've who've weathered um, six almost seven years of incredible hardship economic terrorism media terrorism and full-out uh, extremist terrorism in their country um, but at the same time, there are still risks. People are still being killed, um, absolutely senselessly. I mean, the, the American coalition bombed, again, a civilian area in a hospital today. Um, so that's the fourth uh, bombing in Derazor where they've hit civilian targets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, just to remind people, Haled uh, Al-Khatib, 25-year-old journalist, uh, worked with RT, worked with Sputnik, and he was killed today. Our RT put out a press release 
uh, just a few hours ago about that. And uh, like Vanessa has just said, uh, so many journalists have lost their lives and so many Syrian journalists are working in their own country covering a war, which is basically a, a foreign-initiated uh, war. And they're, they're not paid the sort of salaries that a CNN correspondent gets. They're not in the sort of uh, $1 million, $2 million a year range. Uh, they're making hundreds of dollars per month. Uh, some of them. Is that correct, Vanessa? Yeah. Yeah. You know, these guys are, are, are doing it for their country. They're certainly not doing it for the money, like we could say about the majority of uh, Western media. Um, no, they're, they're doing it for, for a much higher purpose. Um, and, you know, and, and hats off to them. You know, they're also, they also have this... Um, uh, I don't know what, what you would call it, but um, this, this absolute dedication... Yeah. what they consider to be their duty you know and it takes them even um Khaled, who i'm working with Khaled escape i mean he's he's been into the front lines many times um you know these guys are incredibly brave many of them without the equipment they don't even have um the bullet vests they don't have you know this is extraordinary it's it's real bravery yeah yeah, uh, uh Iskaf, by the way, uh, uh, basically published a couple of videos over the last couple of weeks that are just outstanding, going yeah. to going to visit the the home of Banna of Aleppo, uh, Banna mm-hmm. Alibet, and really just do, almost obliterating the official narrative uh, around this uh, child who's been used uh, by by her parents, uh, by Western countries, by Turkey, to basically mm-hmm. as a propaganda tool um his work has just been seminal vanessa uh and what he's achieved uh and and he's also doing that off his own back Um, he's not he's not doing it for money um, but it's it is really extraordinary really good thorough journalistic work Mm. the type that you just don't see very often and uh, and and really connecting the dots um Mm. it's been extraordinary vanessa yeah, no, I mean, he's he's an extraordinary um, journalist. Uh, it's been really an honor to kind of be spending the last three days and, and another two days with him. And actually, um, he took me to uh, Bana Alabed's house. Um, and, and what really sort of struck me about this, and he's talked about it in his videos, and I highly recommend people um, to watch them, um, is basically... You know, the, the story of Bana, we've, we've been given this um, depiction of a child, a seven-year-old child, um, in the midst of bombing from the Syrian government, from the Russian um, military or air force, um, you know, completely at sea in East Aleppo, defenseless, um, and, and tweeting away, um, begging for basically World War III to... to bring an end to to her misery and of course you know um ava bartlett various people have written great investigations into her story based on logic based on geographical location based on um the information they were able to get hold of but what uh Khaled has done of course as you said is actually gone to the house um and, and pieced together her story. And I mean, it's really quite extraordinary um, in the sense that, um, and, and basically, I mean, to, to sort of try and put it very neatly, let's say, uh, her house um, is in the middle of the Al Shad area. Now, in the Al Shad area, which is in East Aleppo, and around Bana's house, including 
next door to her house, there are 20, 20 Nusra Front, so Al-Qaeda um, headquarters and military centers, all in incredibly close lo um, uh, location to Barna's house. But as I said, even when you look out of the top floor window where, where Barna's um, bedroom was, as you look round the corner, there's the Nusra Front headquarters, so right next door. Um, her father, Ghassan al-Abad, uh, and his brother, Yasser al-Abad. Now, Yasser al-Abad uh, actually uh, originated or started the Abu Umara Brigade, which was one of the early Turkish-backed, Turkish-funded and Turkish-supported terrorist and extremist groups inside East Aleppo. Um, Ghassan al-Abad from 2013 was originally with Abu Umara. He then graduated up um, to Nusra Front, and he became one of the, the main sort of Nusra Front people in that area. Um, he was also working, we went to his workshop, where he was repairing um, the Dushka uh, heavy machine guns, the automatic uh, sniper rifles, the automatic machine guns. You could see the remains of where they used to hang the guns. You could see the bullet holes in the wall where they would practice once the machine, once the gun had been repaired. And we were told by people living in that area that children had been extremely traumatized by, by what was happening because the sound of the gunfire, particularly the bigger, the Dushka, um, the big um, heavy machine guns, terrified them, absolutely terrified them. Um, so Gessan Al-Abed uh, had also told the neighbors who, who we spoke with, we sat and spoke with them, and they said, look, his, his greatest um, desire was to end up in Turkey with Erdogan, which, of course, now he's achieved. And they said that this was what he was working towards. So it was very much a power and a status thing, is that he wanted to move up the ladder and end up, obviously, in, you know, in the caliphate, in, in the caliph's court, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but, but what was absolutely even more extraordinary, we went to, for example, there was a hospital in the area which is about 500 meters away from uh, Banala, uh, which is the Dakak Hospital. Um, now, the roof of this hospital was actually used as a hell cannon launching pad into West Aleppo. So Nusra Front were using this hospital 500 meters away from Banala Bet's house as um, as a as a launch pad for the gas canisters for the various missiles and shells that they were firing into civilian areas in West Aleppo during that five years of terrorist occupation of East Aleppo, over eleven thousand civilians were murdered in West Aleppo by these hell cannon gas canisters, um, including the majority of whom were children that were were killed. So, almost next door. I mean, walking distance. Um, where these, where these, uh, I don't know what you call them, military centres um, and and killing centres for Nusra Front, because the other one was the Eye Hospital, which uh, you came into with me in April and May. Now, this was another one of these um, launch pads for the Hell Cannon, and if you remember, I think in in that compound there was actually also um, uh, a Hell Cannon manufacturing centre where they were making the gas canisters. Um, so. You know, the, the, the image of Bana and the footage of Bana that, for example, was produced um, by, I think it was TF1, one of the French channels. If you actually watch um, this documentary, 
it's quite extraordinary how they cut away from all of the Nusra centers. In other words, they're filming Al-Abad walking through the streets of Al-Shar, but they edit the movie so that you don't see any of the Nusra front centers. You would, now I'm watching it, and now I've been there, and now I can piece this together. Mm-hmm. I can see exactly where they're editing so that it just looks like he's walking down a residential area and that there are no fighters. Um, whereas Al-Shad, in fact, was one of the, the real um, big areas for Nusra Front. Because, actually, um, I met Omran Daknish today, of course, the little boy that was used um, as that iconic image in August last year. Um, you know, the CNN reporter was weeping over him, um, ABC in uh, Australia. Um, I think it went viral within eight hours. Um, and... Omran's house was in the same area. And in fact, this area was, to some extent, my interviews that I've had over the last three days, I think it was very much a pro-Syrian government area. So it was heavily, heavily occupied by Nusra Front. And um, through the interviews I've had, I've, I've discovered to what extent Nusra Front carried out reprisals, executions, destruction of property if somebody, if they considered somebody to be Shabiha, in other words, a supporter of the Syrian government. Um, so it's interesting how all of these stories sort of came from the same area, Omran, Bana al-Abad. Um, it's, it's a very interesting um, sort of network here. Um, and the other person that I met with was actually the father of the young man who was originally in the ambulance before they replaced him with Omran. So in other words, uh, Ahmed, Ahmed, who was 23 years old, who'd been injured in the attack, um, was in the ambulance. When they saw Omran sort of staggering out from, from the attack, they decided to get rid to jettison Ahmed and put Omran in his place because obviously he was a child, he was much cuter, he was much more, um, uh, you know, much more iconic as an image than Ahmed would have been. The other interesting thing about the, the Omran story, of course, Western media um, hammered home that it was uh, a Syrian Air Force attack bombing. Now, everybody that I spoke to in the area about that attack have said to me, no, it was a terrorist attack on the neighborhood because we were considered to be government supporters. So it was a terrorist attack um, the child was taken from the terrorist attack, put into the ambulance, the photograph went viral, and the Syrian government was, was blamed um, for his injuries. And, of course, what, what was also um, never revealed was that the family were staunch uh, Syrian government supporters and were not yes. pro um, the terrorist groups. Um, and, in fact, uh, I, I, I did meet uh, Omran, and I met... Uh, his father and his family today. I didn't go with the intention of doing yet another interview with him because I felt, you know, this has been overdone now. Let him be a child. Let him just continue his life um, and forget that he was completely exploited by Western media. But I actually wanted to go to apologize um, on behalf, you know, for, for my country, for my media, for... Um, my country's responsibility in this child abuse, in this exploitation of a child for propaganda to promote war that will kill more children, inevitably. Um, And so I I really just wanted to go and and just see him. And it was heartwarming to see, you know, a happy, normal, 
little boy um, playing with his with his brother and his sister, um, shy like all young kids are. But then, as he warmed up, he started to to sing. He, you know, and and it was it was kind of um, it was a very special uh, interview, actually. Um, and what was interesting is I spoke to his father and I asked him had anybody from those Western media outlets that had exploited his child um, had they come to him to apologize had they even come to him to, to see Omran and to express uh, how glad they were to see him alive and, and happy and comfortable and safe and he said no none of them not one. Not not one of them had even called him. He said that the most they've done is to send stringers, you know, um, sort of um, contract freelance journalists just to do a story. Um, but not one of them has accepted any sort of um, blame for the exploitation of a child, um, which was, uh, um, you know, it's an ongoing. I, I think what is so interesting about the Syrian conflict is that we're seeing this propaganda unravel real time. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't think we've we've ever really had this uh, before. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is really the first time that we're seeing this, um, and and it's it's quite extraordinary just to see it sort of fall apart in front of us, literally real time. Yeah, and it is. It is. And the, so, look, the contrast between Omran and, and Banna, you can't get a, a bigger contrast than this in terms of how the story has ended uh, or as, as it's continued. But uh, Banna's father, uh, Ghassan, so her mm-hmm. uncle ran, ran a weapons uh, repair depot, and I think the grandfather, her grandfather as well. So, is it possible? I'm going to ask you a theoretical question. You don't have to mm-hmm. ask, but is it possible that uh, Banna's uncle was also involved? in the uh, construction of hell cannons. Is that a possibility? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, they were. I mean, without a doubt. Um, they, they would have been um, both Ghassan and Yasser. I mean, Yasser was uh, the head of Abu Amara, so he was, you know, uh, a big chief in the terrorist brigades. Um, so, yes, they, they would have been involved in the manufacture and in the repair and the maintenance of all of the weapons that were being used um, by the terrorists, for sure, absolutely, for sure, um, and and to what kill, was, to kill civilians, yeah, 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 to kill children, yeah. to kill children in in um, in West Aleppo, definitely, mm-hmm. without a doubt, and actually to kill children in East Aleppo because we know that the Hell Cannon were turned on civilians, yes. uh, and in fact, this was a really um, this was another story that I covered. Now, do you remember Jib Al? Uh, Kube, which happened at the end of November. You remember the orange body bags and the white helmets and that yes. incredible scene of the bodies on the street yes. um, just before the liberation of that area, right? You remember that that whole image, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. Now, this is the, the true story, okay? So this, this entire um, story, of course, was one of those, you know, uh, propaganda peaks just as the Syrian army was actually advancing towards this particular area, towards al-Shad area. Um, So many civilians from the surrounding areas were actually coming through al-Shad towards one of the Syrian army crossing points, um, the humanitarian corridors, in other words. Um, And I think over a period of about um, a few days, there were over 2,000 civilians trying to cross through this street where those photographs were taken. And on this particular day, um, as they were crossing at about seven in the morning, 
um, two mortars were fired into the crowd of people. Now, we spoke to numerous witnesses uh, when were we there uh, yesterday. And what they basically said, when you look at where the road is geographically, it was impossible for those mortars, which was what was said in mainstream media, for those mortars to have come from the Syrian Arab army. Because at that point, the Syrian army had not retaken the eye hospital, which is where the mortars came from. That's the direction that the mortars came from. And what the people, the, the witnesses there told us, they said, look, over five years, we became experts at who was firing um, the mortars. And I can actually vouch for this because I became an expert in Gaza when uh, Gaza was being bombed in telling, you know, when it was an outgoing and when it was an incoming, etc., exactly where it was, because you get used to hearing yeah. um, the launch of the missile and then basically counting to when the explosion happens. So I, I can completely vouch for what they were saying. And they said, basically, the time from the launch and the landing of the missile was too close for it to be the Syrian Arab army, because at that point, the closest Syrian forces were um, kilometers away, whereas this, these two mortars had been fired from less than a kilometer. So they'd been fired from the eye hospital, which at that point was still under Nusra front control. It wasn't liberated until four days later. So that's number one. So the mortars fired into that crowd of people trying to escape to the West Aleppo, to the, to the crossing into West Aleppo, to the Syrian army. Um, were Nusra Front from the eye hospital. That's number one. So it wasn't the Syrian army artillery as claimed in Western media and by the White Helmets. But secondly, and possibly the more shocking aspect of this, was that we were told categorically that the attack happened at 7 a.m. The White Helmets were there, but they were there as fighters until this attack happened. Then suddenly, miraculously, they became White Helmets. And actually, if you watch the footage of that. You see them walking around with literally white helmets stuck on top of the um, kafaya that many of them wear wrapped around their heads. And they're wearing fighting clothes, Some of, many of them. They're not wearing white helmet uniforms until much later. Um, but the bodies were left from 7 a.m. until 4 p.m. And the yeah. white helmets were seen stealing all the belongings of those uh, dead and dying civilians. The families were not allowed to come and collect the bodies. They were kept out. Um, and the White Helmets were filming during this time. Only at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, so for 10 hours, those bodies were left. We don't know if any of them were, were alive and, and died as a result of being left. At that time, it would have been very as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually at 4 p.m., they came and, and brought in the orange body bags and then of course you know those icon again those iconic photographs were taken which went viral on virtually every western media so again this is a completely different um narrative true narrative you know based on testimony based on logic based on rationale compared to to what was the the knee-jerk reaction as usual from mainstream media based on the testimony of guess who the white helmets Mm -hmm. And and also, uh, just to clarify, Banna of Aleppo, her father, Ghassan, was a, a Sharia lawyer who worked mm -hmm. 
one of his primary places of work was the eye hospital, which was the yep. yep. front and ISIS command center. ISIS, yeah. When yeah, ISIS had control. Yeah, yeah. So that's he was, yeah, he was there, I think. Let me just check my dates on this. Um, because ISIS was in control, I think it was up until 2014, and that was when he was working with them. Then they had fierce battles with what was then the Free Syrian Army. I mean, we've got to remember, in East Aleppo, there were, I think there were 50 um, different battalions. Yes. Each of them had four brigades. <laughs> so it becomes like incredibly complex when you, you know, that it, it's, it's impossible to say there were any moderates because all of them were overlorded by Nusra Front in any area where there was Nusra Front, basically Nusra Front took control. Right. Um, and this is what has happened. What happened there was that ISIS had fierce battles with the Free Syrian Army. The Free Syrian Army basically drove ISIS out. And after that, Nusra Front took control. So he was in charge of basically... Um, the executions of civilians during the time of ISIS, but also afterwards during the time of Nusra Front. So, you know, this mm -hmm. father of, of Ban al-Abed, and this is by no means any blame on Ban al-Abed. She's a child. Um, but her father was one of the, the most prominent terrorists in the area. And, and not only was he one of the most prominent terrorists, um, he was, as you said, repairing weapons, um, supplying um, equipment for them, for, for the weaponry, for the armory, um, and taking care of, of that aspect of the terrorist um, camp in East Aleppo. Um, at the same time, two days ago, I uh, was able to have an interview with Fatima Al-Abed's uncle, wow. um, which was very interesting, very enlightening. And in fact, Khaled is, um, he's producing a third video, which will include um, the testimony from Fatima's uh, uncle. So I don't want to sort of um, steal his thunder, so to speak, but just to give a very quick overview. Um, basically, in, in December, Fatima actually called her uncle and asked to be allowed to leave through the humanitarian corridors without Ghassan. So she asked to be allowed to leave with her children, but she was worried about what security would say, because obviously by that time, you know, Bana had already become um, an icon of the Syrian, in inverted commas, revolution. Um, her uncle gave her assurances that she would be safe. And I remember at the time, I think Maytam uh, and I think even Farish Shahabi were tweeting saying that, you know, she would have safe passage and, and she would be able to come to safety in West Aleppo with Bana and the children. Um, she decided, for whatever reason, not to. Um, but the family itself, and, and again, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave a lot of the detail to, to Khaled and I will be writing up the interview and posting it. He allowed me to film him. Um, but the family itself, the Shihan family, uh, are staunch Syrian government supporters. They're actually members of the Ba'ath Party, mm -hmm. um, which is why Fatima changed her name from Shihan to Shimun um, to try and distance herself. Well, either to try and distance herself from her family or to try and maintain anonymity in a terrorist area. We, you know, that that's all speculation. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I can't, you know, I, it, I can't conclude anything on that. But she certainly changed her name. <laughs> um, the last time that 
the uncle actually saw Fatima was when his own son was murdered by the terrorists um, in East Aleppo and he had to go to get the body and he said that at that point Fatima actually came to him and helped him. When his second son was, was killed in 2016, she didn't. So there was a distance already sort of forming at that point between her and her family. And he said that from 2013, both Fatima and Ghassan were heavily involved with the terrorists. So, you know, the history of, of the Alabed family is definitely um, seeped in, in terrorism. Now, you know, Bana is a child. She's, she's not to be held responsible for this, but, but who should be held responsible or who should be um, alerted to this? J.K. Rowling, you know, who's, who's been um, promoting, marketing this child, is um, probably involved in the, in the publishing or the writing of her book. Um, how, you know, I, 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 was, I tried to, to um, film from, from Bana's bedroom and the enormity of this uh, lie hit me that here we have a child being we're saving one child as a tool for propaganda while thousands of children are dying as a result of this propaganda it's it's heinous this is this is <laughs> you know, it's it's difficult to even find words to describe what is happening here, because looking down at the devastation below her window, looking to my right and seeing the Nusra Front headquarters, looking to my left and seeing the hospital where they fired the Hell Cannon canisters containing um, gas, containing uh, metal particles, containing glass into children areas, into schools, into civilian areas um, in West Aleppo. And then thinking about this, um, this charmed life this seven-year-old is being given purely because she serves a propaganda that maintains this destruction, that allows this devastation, that whitewashes these terrorist atrocities. It's, it's absolutely, you know, Channel 4, BBC, uh, ABC, CNN, all of these media outlets, all of them, J.K. Rowling, what are you doing? What are you doing? You should be telling the story of these children. These children who were sat outside Bana Labed's house crying because they have nothing. They have no electricity. They have no water. They, don't, they are not deprived because of the Syrian government. They're deprived because of these terrorist entities that were living in the area around the child that you are presenting as, as, a, as, an, as a war icon. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's and her father and the child's father is a, pro, you know, a prominent terrorist. Uh, yeah. And, and it, you can't get a, a better story. This is the best story that the media should be chasing. Just to preface to everybody out there, J.K. Rowling is uh, one of the most wealthy women in Britain, maybe in the world. And uh, she's a best-selling author of the Harry Potter series. And she championed Banna of Aleppo very early on and helped to elevate her status uh, and make her the icon that she, she became in the mainstream and has uh, now brokered a, a multi-million dollar book deal uh, with Simon & Schuster Publishers uh, due out in September, uh, which is not too long from now, maybe a month. Uh, so it, it, it is an incredible story, Vanessa, and you know it makes me think that they're giving her millions of dollars to basically 
promulgate the the, the lie that, mm. that was already being you know put out there and then the, the real great bestseller should be the truth that's mm. that's what i'm seeing here yeah yeah absolutely and i mean um i don't know how much time we've got left but um one of the other very important points that i wanted to make um going back to uh the orange body bag <laughs> uh, scenario um that was presented by the white helmets this actual street was quite extraordinary um, if you can imagine walking down the street, on the right-hand side, there was uh, the East Aleppo Council, one of the um, various East Aleppo Council buildings. Basically, each district had its own um, council. Now, this council, we know from the documentation that we found in East Aleppo, was being funded as a British government scheme um, that had been set up by... Adam Smith International Integrity um, Consulting through their Tamkeen project. Um, and we have a very clear funding stream from those organizations connected to the DFIDS in um, um, the, the Department of International Development in the British government um, to, to basically set up a sort of a shadow state um, in East Aleppo with its own police force, with its own civil defense, the White Helmets. Um, so you had the East Aleppo Council on your right. Opposite the East Aleppo Council, you had um, uh, Abu Amara's um, headquarters. Directly ahead of you, so to the right of, of um, the council, was the White Helmet Center. Now again, this is a pattern that repeats itself throughout um, East Aleppo. Um, another area I went to, still in, in the Al-Shar neighborhood, but a little bit further out towards the eye hospital, we came down again to another Aleppo council, so another council funded by the British government, um, and comprising, the members of these council comprised of terrorists, so Nusra Front, uh, Nur al-Dinzinki, um, um, sham not so much, um, but certainly Nusra Front, Zinki, Abu Amara, so they were terrorist councils. Um, but this, this second one that I was talking about, opposite uh, this council, was actually a converted um, carport and, and garage, so an, almost an entire street of buildings. When you walked into, was a Nusra Front bomb-making center. And I have to say, it was one of the most unpleasant buildings I've ever had to walk into. I mean, just the sheer filth and, and, and devastation inside this place. It, it stunk. Um, but on the floor everywhere were remnants of missiles, um, bomb-making equipment, um, various components of, of missiles. We saw one um, cone-shaped missile. I actually posted a photograph of it. And next to it was a pile of what looked like very fine metal powder and I was told that what they would do is pack the metal powder into the cone-shaped missile. Um, and then, it, basically, this acts like a dime bomb. The dime bomb were used by Israel against Gaza. And what it does is, when it explodes, it releases uh, all of this tiny, tiny particle of very fine dust metal, which it enters the wound. And it then, via the... the um, uh, the, the blood, it enters your body. 
and basically eventually it infects uh, your organs it infects the wound and because the particles are so tiny it's it's impossible to treat so the victims don't heal right it's one of the most horrible i saw it also being used by the suicide bombers in alka in the christian village um in lebanon they told me there also that um victims of of the suicide bombings uh 6 months after the bombing were still in hospital because the wounds were simply not healing um so you know the british government is funding these terrorist so-called councils who are working alongside the white helmets who are also british government funded okay also us government qatar and various other um eu government funding coming into them also and probably also into the into the local councils but it is it is predominantly british government motivated um schemed <laughs> um this entire sort of shadow state terrorist um organization and they're always working side by side so you will never find the the Aleppo council for example without a terrorist center next door to it and the white helmets very close because we've actually gone through virtually the whole of east Aleppo to see whether there is any change in this pattern and no there isn't yeah so that that, that that's a like you said and the important thing too it outlines is a pattern that you just see mm. from in different places so clearly this is an organizational structure and yeah. it, and you're analyzing this and you're seeing this this is was systematic right across right across Aleppo and uh so there was definitely this wasn't uh, anything remotely near a revolution or some arab spring movement or anything like this uh this was a military terrorist takeover of a city yeah. basically yeah and and you know and it's not um if if you also take the hospitals you know the famous last hospital um being bombed in reality i i haven't seen one single destroyed hospital i've seen hospitals that have been targeted but then if you can um like the bakak hospital like the i hospital they were being used as launch pads as a say of of the hell cannons of course they were a target they were a legitimate target they they were um terrorist centers um, so they were they were entirely a legitimate target um for the the russian and syrian air force and for the for the syrian army and its allies as they were liberating the area as were the schools because as we saw um when we were there in april and may the schools i think out of the 500 schools 300 were taken over and turned into um terrorist centers again because they're strong buildings the same as the hospital they're big they're strong buildings they have basements so they have um you know that they have the ability to to take shelter when they're being bombed the, the civilians didn't have that privilege yeah yeah we got it we just got a couple minutes left uh mm-hmm. Vanessa uh in the in the segment but um uh is there anything else that you wanted to uh, share with us before we break Yeah away? I I mean I think I think one of the things I I think one of the most um emotional moments for me was I was actually I I spent about 2 hours with um the parents yeah. of uh the young boy Hello Uh yeah Hello? go ahead we just yeah. lost you for a second but go ahead Oh sorry um I I spent about 2 hours with the parents of the young man who had been put in the ambulance prior to to Omran um replacing him. And I talked to them about um their entire story under the terrorist occupation, but I think one of the most sort of 
really touching moments for me that just sums everything up in East Aleppo and, and, and demonstrates the lies of Western media was when they came to the end of their story and they said to us that right at the end of the battles they were forced to leave their home. Um, Nusra, Front, they, Nusra Front had told them they were all dead because they knew them to be government supporters and as they were, were fleeing they said okay we're going to kill all of you, we're going to destroy your property. Um, they were shelling them. So they were running through the streets for, for two hours, 15 families. And right at the end of the two hours, there were two fighters standing in front of them. And, and they said at the time they were so confused, they didn't know if it was Syrian army, they didn't know if it was Nusra Front. But the fighters said to them, look, just go in the house and keep going straight. And they went into the building. And of course, at that time, many of the houses had been knocked through. So it was almost like a tunnel for the fighters to, to walk through house mm -hmm. by house. And they'd be protected from, from the fire, from the Syrian army, etc., and from view. So these families, these 15 families with all of their belongings were walking through and this couple just in front of me just suddenly dissolved into tears. Um, and they said to me, we suddenly saw at the end of this, the Syrian flags. And they, right in front of me during this interview, they both absolutely just, the, the father and the mother just burst into tears. And they said at that point, they knew they were safe. And I think that story and that emotion, even, you know, uh, six months on, eight months on, um, is extraordinary. And it, and it just demonstrates the sense of liberation for these people when finally the Syrian army broke through and the terrorist occupation was over. And I think, you know, for, for, for mainstream media to ignore these voices, to ignore this emotion, to ignore this suffering again, is, is one of the most monumentously criminal um, dereliction of duty that our media has ever been responsible for. Yeah, they've disenfranchised uh, uh, a whole population uh, yeah. through, through wiping, them, wiping them from view. But yeah. uh, powerful story powerful story and uh, we're hope we hope to see more uh of your stories and your reports and uh we'll share some of those uh and and do share what you can on the uh on the yeah. 20th century wire facebook page we've shared a couple of your facebook posts they're mm. brilliant great photographs great images uh and commentary there by vanessa Beely. she's on the ground right now in aleppo doing absolutely superb work uh with her colleagues there as well getting the truth out and and really writing the correct history of this war and and we really appreciate your efforts and so do our listeners vanessa thank you thanks for having me on you know, th thank you thank you stay safe vanessa and uh, we hope to speak to you very soon all right. Take, take care. Take care. Take. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Vanessa Beely is on the ground in Syria. Fantastic report. And Mike, uh, you know, there's so much information uh, in that report, and it, it really obliterates uh, so many of the official narratives that we've been uh, seeing over the last couple of years. Right there, in, in just an hour, Mike, we've just we've just you know, Vanessa just obliterated uh, much of the mainstream narrative. Uh, on Syria, it's incredible. You you think about who who bought into and and used the Banna story, the Omran story, Channel Four, BBC, uh, NBC, or, uh, New York Times, the, Washington Post, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Times, everybody. The the awards that the that the, the the images were getting. Mm -hmm. uh, so the mainstream media, uh, right across the board in the West, at least, completely complicit and bought into this 
this narrative that they decided to run with uh, without any due diligence or any uh, proper investigation. So, uh, you know, what Vanessa is presenting uh, and through 21st Century War, how can these guys uh, continue? How can they survive? Uh, they are hemorrhaging readership. They're hemorrhaging money. Uh, they cannot. They can't survive on, on this basis, can they? Well, the thing that's amazing, Mike, is this: this is the big story. The big story is the lie, and the debunking of that lie is the big story. This is the main uh, important story coming out of uh, Syria right now. And you'd think that there would be somebody out there, some enterprising editor, some enterprising and investigative journalist with one of these rags uh, from the Rolling Stone, you know, who whatever. Uh, who wants to make a name for themselves uh, would actually look at the amount of stuff that's being dug up here by by Vanessa and uh, Khaled uh, Iskaf and others and look at that and say, this is the story right now of Syria, right here. We, we've, just, we've just had it for, for, for an hour, Mike. There's enough detail in there for anybody to want to dig in. So I, I would expect to see this in, the, in one of the major uh, rags on Monday. Yep, but they can't. How, how can they? How, how can they admit that what they've done for the last three, four years? How can they do that? And so it would. So what you have though is you have sort of people who out there, uh, foundation funded, uh, what I call bloggers, uh, who then look at look at what she's doing, Vanessa and others, and then graft, copy and paste that, and then say, you know, and to, to try to carry the alternative audience over to their side. I won't n- mention any names, but there's a few of them out there in America. Uh, who are doing this foundation-funded so-called media outlets. Um, and so that's that, that's about the best they can do, Mike, is try to just herd some of the alternative community over to a sort of a safe foundation-funded media outlet and launder uh, the concern through that. Yeah. But but what we're doing here is, is collecting real information, gathering real data, verifiable, uh, and talking to witnesses, getting statements, putting the story together, okay, which is which is worthy of uh, of an award, which is worthy of a of a multi million dollar book deal by Simon and Schuster, not what they're doing with this poor child banner. Mm. And you should be ashamed of yourself, J.K. Rowling. Absolutely. In the face of the facts, in the face of the truth, to to want to profit off of this lie, this book should not go on the shelves because it's not true. It's a fabrication, and it's manipulative. And they're using a child to to generate money. It's shameful, Mike. There's there's no journalistic integrity, and uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, they they should do the right thing and pull the book, Mike. That would be the right thing to do, right? In, yes. In the face of the facts. Yes. To, that would be, and, and, and there's no harm in that. They're not going to go out of business. They'll, they they've still got plenty of good authors and good books to sell. That company, they're huge. It's a global company, publishing company. Why do they have to push this particular lie is the question, Mike. Why, why are they insisting on it? Because this lie validates so many other lies mm. that have been shoved down the throats of people in the West through the last six years, creating the lie that is the Syrian revolution or whatever they want to call it, and the rebels and everything. And so that, that's why the banner domino can't fall. The establishment cannot let that one fall. And guess what? You know how many people are invested in that? Erdogan in Turkey is all over that. So he falls as well. Maybe it will fall. If they want him to fall, this is a good way to start. Mm. 
maybe they'll maybe they will allow this domino to fall if when Erdogan's time comes to go and the collateral damage from that will hit everybody who's been pumping this story up this fake fiction uh, out of out of Syria it's just unbelievable mike i can't believe we're living in very strange times <laughs> very strange times i can't believe it the emperor is naked and running around streaking around the emperor is streaking around town mike it's unbelievable. And he's eating out of people's fridges, and he's everywhere. <laughs> the emperor's got no clothes, and he's up to no good, and he's everywhere. What are we going to do about this situation? Oh, my gosh. How much more exposure can it take, Mike? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> incredible, incredible. Well, look, we're going to wrap it up this week, and uh, we appreciate uh, Mike Robinson here, editor of the UK Column in the Daylight Studios uh, here in Devon. And also thank you to Basil Valentine, uh, our uh, roving correspondent for culture and sport uh, at the uh, Port Elliott Literary Festival over there in Cornwall, just across the river. Beautiful day today. I'm glad they got some good weather this weekend. Of course, uh, on the ground in Aleppo, what an extraordinary report we just got. And the detail is just tremendous. Vanessa Beely, if you missed any of the live show, you can listen to the archive. We'll be up at 21stCenturyWire.com, Spreaker.com, and also on iTunes hours after the show for our podcasting community. Thank you to everybody, the thousands of people on iTunes now downloading our show. It's unbelievable. The numbers are incredible on iTunes, Mike. I think we're in the top. We made it into the chart of news and politics uh, uh, recently as well on the iTunes rankings on news and politics. So we're doing really well over on that platform. But uh, thank you, everybody out there who's supporting this show. Thank you to our, our donors, our members, our subscribers. We really appreciate you. You're making this work possible. You're keeping this show uh, on air and thriving and doing the work that we're meant to be doing. And we really appreciate your support. And we, we've got hopefully some more things that we're going to have up on 21wire.tv and on, on the main website uh, in the next week. We, we have struggled a little bit as we've changed uh, continents over the last month and a half, two months. It's been difficult also coming off the back of the Middle East uh, trip that I was with uh, Vanessa there in Syria for five weeks in the Middle East. So it's been a challenge. Uh, hopefully we're getting our feet set now and we've got a few things we have lined up and we really appreciate that. Also, UK Column uh, doing great work. Mike, Monday to Friday, 1 o'clock uh, UK time, 1 till 2 p.m., Monday to Friday. Yep. Best daily news program and analysis out there. And so do tune into that, ukcolumn.org, every day, live news. Uh, so if you don't like what you're seeing on the mainstream news, uh, there's your alternative right there, daily program. And we're here every Sunday on the Sunday Wire. Also, the Boiler Room on ACR, uh, alternate current radio. And that's Thursday uh, on ACR is the Boiler Room, also one of the most highly regarded, best conversational talk shows, most innovative talk shows out there. This is all happening on the Alternate Current Radio Network. Uh, and so to tune in, thank you to everybody at ACR. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's our program. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and also in the chat room at ACR. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be back next week with an extraordinary program. So stay tuned and do keep uh, reading and sharing our articles at 21stCenturyWire.com. This way we get the information out and it helps us do what we do. Thank you, everybody, and take care. See you next week.